0: Good morning. good morning. I am a UFM member and apparently president-elect of, of, the, of the fellowship. Um, so, uh, did, has anyone gotten a picture of the flag to send to Rabbi Rami to prove that we don't only fly it when he speaks here? He, uh, for those who weren't here the last time he spoke, he brought us this flag as a good representation and he joked about, we would just put it out when he's here. Um, so, um, anyhow, um, you know, every time I, I get the call to speak up here, I'm like, I'm really excited, and I get all these ideas, and um, and I spend some time like trying to mold them into something cohesive. And by the time I get here, they've spilled all over the place. They're they're uncorraled. And I'm second-guessing every word, um, even as proof, scribbling in the margins during the, um, the um, uh, meditation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, illegibly, I might add. Um, so, um, there's such a wide range of beliefs and um, experiences and knowledge here in this room that um, it's a little, frankly, intimidating. Um, I'm not an expert on language, I'm not an expert on democracy, I'm not an expert on Unitarian Universalism or uh, linguistic privilege, on Plato, which he'll come into this picture, the Norman invasion. Um, I'm not an expert on anything except software testing. I do that really well. Um, Someday I'll get up here and give you a talk on boundary class, uh, boundary uh, values and equivalence class partitioning. That's not today so um so if you're you're first time here um, and this is not resonating with you it's okay we have a regular rotation of actual speakers um, we just happened to have an empty spot this sunday because another service had to be postponed so come back it'll be different um, so this week <laughs> that all that second guessing hit me really hard friday night um, So i was trying to you know get this to make sense um and to be worth listening to. Um, this is a talk I actually gave fairly early in the pandemic over Zoom, and I don't think too many of you were, were on it. Um, and I've always kind of wanted to revisit it because I felt like I could do it better. And I think I am today, but it's still not quite where I want it to be, so. Um, but it was, it was bad Friday night. I, I decided to give up. I was gonna do something else. Fourth principle. That, was, that, was, <laughs> that didn't work out <laughs> either, so. Um, this wouldn't let me go, so here we are, hoping that there's something in this that, you will, uh, that gives you some food for thought. Um, if you find that I am wrong about any of this, or misguided, or say something that... that some of these are sensitive topics, some of these are, are, are um, things that may be harmful um, in some ways. And if you find that to be the case, please tell me and I will, I will do what I can to make that up. Um, so the title, the title, Language is Not a Democracy. Um, I was pricking my way around the internet, just looking for stuff a few years ago, and I came across that phrase um, on the Unitarian Universalist Hysterical Society's Guide to Writing Mediocre Sermons. <laughs> it's like, found my people. Um, I came came across that I was looking for an inspiration for a different talk. Um, But this, this guide pointed out that it's not uncommon for a UU speaker to start with a dictionary definition of a word. The Oxford English Dictionary defines X as Y or Z, and then the speaker will say, for the purposes of this talk, we'll define X as sunshine. And for the duration of that talk, X means only sunshine and nothing else, because the speaker said so, and language is not a democracy. And I thought it was cute, it was a little funny, but it planted a little seed in my head. Is language really a democracy? How does language live with democracy? How does democracy live with language? So um, first, lay a little groundwork. Um, Languages, most of you probably already know, they're living things. They grow, they evolve, they change. They die, they become extinct. Um, For the purposes of this talk, a dead language is like Latin or Sanskrit, has no native speakers, but is still in use in certain applications like legal or medical. Uh, An extinct language is just done. Um, So they no longer evolve. Sometimes attempts to revive extinct languages can be successful, but um, not in widespread use usually. So, language changes, we all can, can understand that. It's human nature, I believe, that if there's a change, I want to be in charge of it. Um, you know, if you're in charge, it's change, but if I'm in charge, it's innovation. With a living language, who gets to be the one to decide how it changes and how it doesn't change and how it mustn't change? Um, the de- debate over that goes way back. Um, to two and a half millennia ago, Plato, here's his cameo, uh, he was writing about linguistic conventionalists and naturalists. A conventionalist holding that words mean what the community agrees they mean. A naturalist maintains that words have some intrinsic meaning outside of the conventions of the people using the language. And I I can see Ryan shaking his head. I think most of us would lean more towards the conventionalist side. Um, Language means what we intend it to mean. Um, Whether it's interpreted by someone else as what we intended is another story. But who gets to be the decision maker um, on what it means? Usually, it's the folks with the socioeconomic and political means to enforce the conventions. I've read that uh, a language is just a dialect with an army. It's, it's a cow in the field, but it's beef on the plate because the Normans conquered England in 1066, and it was the conquered people mucking out the barns and, and spreading the grain for the chickens for their conquerors, the French nobility, to eat. So cow beef, chicken poultry, sheep, mutton, pigs, pork, so that phrase, language is not a democracy, and the question of who decides the correct usage got me thinking about discussions that have been had around personal pronouns and resistance just to saying they, they're, them, which I love that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, resistance, so resistance because it's bad grammar. Um, resistance may be a little strong. Um, I, I confess, when I first heard it, I had a little twinge because they is plural, um, using it as a singular. You know, all my education, all my K through 12 um, college of English major, um, copy editing classes, Chicago Manual of Style, and this was back in the 80s. So, you know, this is a while ago. Every business communication I've ever, instruction I've ever gotten said he or she, she or, she or her, his or hers, him or her, instead of they. Yeah, it's, it's, it, now that feels uncomfortable to me. Um, but it was etched in my brain for a long time by a lot of teachers and a lot of um, authorities. But um, actually, they, them, theirs has been singular for a much longer time. And you was plural until a few hundred years ago. Um, Now we use it, or we use it, as singular or plural, without thinking about it. Although, personally for me, I very much appreciate coming to the South and really embracing the word y'all. I love that word, and I love y'all. So, every living language evolves along with its speakers, and English is evolving to fill the linguistic needs of the communities that use it, and to object on the grounds of grammar doesn't feel right. And when I, I kind of realized that, and this was a little while ago, um, I just had a little conversation with my inner Mrs. Woods, who she was my English honors teacher in high school. Uh, had a little conversation with her in my mind, and, um, and then just embraced how amazing it is that we have a language that grows and evolves with us to serve our needs and how easy it is not to hurt people that way. And for anyone and I, I do I am aware that as a late boomer, some of you may have not experienced some of these things in you know, more recent years in education or, or society, but it's still there. I, I promise you, it's still there. Um, so if you think that there's no precedent for creating new words Um, for people who prefer zay, zem, zir, or something like that, other alternatives. You only have to look back to 1986, when the New York Times published that it would start using Ms. Mm -hmm. in articles and um, editorial columns. Or go back another 14 years before that, when Ms. Magazine was first published, Mm -hmm. or back another, back into the 1960s, which was the decade I was born in, um, when feminist Sheila Michaels campaigned to popularize it as a way for women not to be defined by their relationships with men. Or even further back to the 1950s, when it first kind of came to the surface. Um, so that, um, looking back from 1986 to the 1950s, so that took a good 30 years for one mainstream publication to recognize a new way of addressing people. Um, It takes time, but it sure as heck can be done. So, the other thing that bounced around my brain for a while was the idea of linguistic privilege. Race and gender are categories that probably are the first ones that come to your mind when someone says privilege. there are others, and they are intersectional. And like other types of privilege, it didn't really occur to me that a language privilege might exist, let alone that I had it, um, until one day I went down another internet. I spend way too much time on the internet, man. <laughs> <'Til-> <laughs> I went down an internet rabbit hole, and, it came- and I came across an article in the Linguistic Pulse titled Language Privilege, What It Means and Why It Matters. It exists. And I have it um, as a native speaker of the dominant language, of the dominant culture, someone with a pretty solid command of standard or general American English with a relatively neutral accent, although I've, I've sensed in the last decade and a half since I moved to Tennessee, it might be starting to lean a little towards the south. But um, coming from the San Francisco Bay Area, I've always felt it was fairly neutral. Um, i didn 't ask for it i didn 't do anything to deserve it or, or i didn 't work for it, and because of it, there are some hurdles in life that I have not had to overcome. Um, I was unaware of it because the hurdles weren 't there, and i didn 't have to overcome them so um, so uh, What kind of got me to thinking about this was the run-up to the 2016 election, when there was so much out there on Facebook, so again, too much time on the Internet, I know. Um, And people would post things, and people would post, you know, well-reasoned, contradicting opinions, but they'd misspell a word, or they'd use an apostrophe in the wrong place, or their grammar wasn't great, or their choice of words wasn't exactly maybe what mine would have been, um, and even though I knew what their point was, did that opinion have as much of an impression on me, did it um, did it resonate with me as much as it could have if it had been written, and I'm using a lot of air quotes here properly. Um, <laughs> But then I would cringe, like actually, ooh, when someone else corrected that person's spelling, and I still do that when I see that. Um, and if I know the person, I'm not going to put another comment on Facebook saying, you know, don't do this. But I'm going to talk to them and just say, you know, when you do that, it kind of, kind of, you know, derails the conversation. Um, you know, people shouldn't be shamed for not having a perfect command of a language that may or may not be their first language or that they may have grown up speaking a different dialect in a different region. Um, the implication that you, if you can't speak or spell correctly, you don't get a voice. Um, I mean, maybe it was just the Facebook algorithm, which is a hate-hate relationship for me. Um, maybe it was just what that was feeding me, but I, I really sensed that it was more the liberal, educated folks who were saying, your voice doesn't matter because you're not as smart as we are, because we can spell. Um, And I think that the winner of that election used that to his advantage in creating a a paradigm where he could get those people to identify with him by using the same kind of language and saying, see, all those folks are out against us. so." So words matter. Privilege is a loaded one. Um, usually described in terms of advantages that dominant groups have due to systemic biases and discrimination and people who don't really think it you know some people have had really hard lives without um, the extra burdens of not having a certain privilege. Um, They you know given their life advantages they they do don't think they have you know many advantages at all. Um, I've seen brave, inclusive, um, liberal, educated people bristle at the idea that they have some privilege by being white and or male. Um, Words words do matter. Maybe we could bristle a little less if it's framed as a lack of barriers rather than an advantage. Would that make it easier to put our energy into removing barriers rather than defending ourselves against a perception of unfair advantages? I don't know. That's, um, that's something for someone else to figure out, I'm afraid. Um, but language privilege or linguistic privilege is the, the benefits or the lack of barriers that are based on fluency or proficiency in the dominant language. It can affect job prospects, social integration, access to education, access to information, access to resources, and political power. It can be used as a wedge or a weapon. Dialects influence who we respect as an authority or leader. And linguistic privilege can manifest in various ways. The marginalization of languages or dialects spoken by minority communities can place limits on their access to mainstream media representation except as a caricature Uh, creates barriers to education, professional networks, employment, all else being equal. In this country, people perceived as having mastery of standard or general American English are more likely to influence decision-making processes, shape public opinion, policy outcomes. I believe that is changing. Um, The voices I hear, I believe that is changing. It's a journey. We're not quite to the, the end of that journey yet. Um, so, is democracy possible in a country where minority languages have been pushed to the margins? Um, some of you may have heard of Noam Chomsky, he's an American linguist. Um, he is an expert. <laughs> where I'm totally not expert, he is an expert. He said, there can't be a democracy without equal and representative voices and active participation of all citizens in political decisions concerning and affecting their lives. Um, Considering the hundreds, over 350 um, counted languages that are spoken in this country, that's a little bit of a challenge um, considering that if I do the math right, which is unlikely in my head that I'm doing it right, but um, maybe two-thirds of Americans speak English as a native language, um, about uh, over 254 million anyways um, to 40-plus million uh, native Spanish speakers, uh, plus all the Chinese dialects, the Korean, Japanese, Indian, um, etc., And also considering the native English speaker who grew up in a community or culture where a non-standard variant of English is spoken, native speakers of standard e- English have had the advantage of having their speech perceived more positively than second language English speakers who have accents. And ESL speakers, people for whom English is not their native language, may speak it well, but may still be facing barriers based on the accent they have and how deep that accent is. Um, Standard English or general English. I always grew up, it was always standard English, but now I guess they're calling it general English. Um, So I'm kind of flipping back and forth on that, trying to make some new neural pathways there. Um, so, general English speakers have the same advantages relative to non standard speakers. Um, sorry. Okay. So, general English speakers having advantages relative to non standard speakers, such as African American English speakers and Southern American English speakers. Um, non standard is usually not correct, not viewed as the correct. Standard or general is, by default, the proper way. Um, Non-standard English speakers may not even be fully aware of that gap until they reach an an age when learning a new dialect would be a challenge. Efforts to close that gap are strongly resisted. Um, Probably a lot of you if you are even old enough, may not have heard much about it. It was in Oakland. There was a movement in the mid-90s to um, introduce um, Ebonics in the schools, but it was overwhelmingly rejected, not because of what it actually was, which was um, just taking it into account when wow. teaching standard English and compare and contrast standard English to ebonics, but it was misrepresented by its opponents as an effort to kick English out and put ebonics in, so it failed. Um, I have heard that in other countries, Morocco, Finland, Italy, non-standard usage in conversation is a mark of regional origin, not of intellectual capacity or of achievement. I haven't been to those countries, I don't speak those languages. I only hope it's true because that means it's possible. So, what's my point? I'm hoping that, these, that this has led in maybe a roundabout way, a little bit haphazardly, to the idea that effective communication and community building depends on a shared understanding of meaning and intent and on a willingness to prioritize understanding of another human being over rules of grammar and punctuation. Criticizing common but non-standard language uses, um, what does that that benefit us? Um, What does it serve to shame a political opponent for how they speak and spell when it's not an impediment to our understanding? Democracy depends on a willingness to overcome barriers to mutual understanding, including the linguistic ones. So, yeah, I, I still notice when someone uses your possessive instead of your, the contraction. I, I, I can't help it. I notice a lot of things. Um, you know, 20-plus years as a software tester, I notice things. So, but if their point is clear, and I have no response to it, Um, Aside from what Mrs. Woods, or Ms. Woods, as I never dared to call her in the, you know, 1980. um, But she would have marked as red pen on my essay. Maybe I shouldn't respond at all. Um, Judging and dismissing opinions based on spelling and, and grammar, I'm doing a disservice to myself and to whoever is sharing their opinion with me, and I'm ignoring the possibility of meaningful dialogue. So learning to recognize and understand ways in which we might have been born with certain unearned advantages, it is an exercise towards building a just and equitable community. And like many other forms of privilege, those who have it may not see it in themselves and may not see how it is intertwined with other types of privilege. So English is a living language. And like most other living things, it, do- it doesn't always evolve in a direction most pleasing to all humans. But language is a democracy. Every voice gets one vote on how to use it. Thank you.